Hello everyone and welcome to our prepcast. This podcast is dedicated to MBA and master's orientation and preparation. My name is Martina and in today's episode we are going to talk about the top 10 GRE myths and we will give you some direct points and best advice on how to deal with them. I'm here today with a special guest, Stefan, who is a tutor in my guru team. MyGuru is a Chicago-based education company providing one-on-one tutoring, test preparation, and trusted advice in person in Chicago, in New York, Boston, and Minneapolis. Stefan, it is a pleasure having you here today. Thank you so much for accepting our invitation. I have introduced you really shortly, but could you please tell us a little bit more about your background and how actually you end up working in the field of higher education? Absolutely. So I uh, have been working with GMAT students, GRE students, LSAT students, ACT students, SAT students for nearly two decades now. Uh, My academic background, personally, I have a undergraduate degree from the University of Southern California in Los Angeles in communication, and I have a master's degree in journalism from Northwestern University on the north side of Chicago. I, in between those two lessons actually, or or in between those two uh, degrees, actually spent about four years in television production working for ESPN, largely on soccer and uh, college football and college basketball. So uh, one fun tidbit about me is that I did graphics for the halftime of the, one of the most famous Soccer matches of all time when Zinedine Zidane headbutted Matarazzi. Very disappointingly, because I am actually a Frenchman. But so, <laughs> a lot of interesting different directions in my career. But ultimately, I discovered that I didn't enjoy the media all that much, but I did like getting folks into college. So I was able to turn my career this direction. And basically, I apply a lot of the concepts that you find in preparation in preparing for say sporting events to preparing for things like the GRE. So you can use a lot of the same kind of training methodology to improve here as you would say on a basketball court or a soccer pitch. Great, you have really interesting background. And uh, let's start actually with uh, the first and maybe most believed myth, not only for GRE, but for every test that it's possible to cram. Yeah, so it's a a nice segue from that introduction. (laughs) So it's impossible to cram to be a a, a world-class soccer player. It's a, or football player, depending on uh, where you are in the the world. Uh, It's impossible to cram to become an excellent artist or musician. And it's impossible to cram to become a great GRE uh, test taker. You have to cultivate your skills through regular targeted practice and review of that practice so that you can learn what you did right, what you did wrong, and how to close the gap between those things. So cramming by doing multiple exams, I've had people who have tried to do more than one exam in a day, try not to do that. Uh, it's also why most of the time you don't have people try to do more than one soccer game in a, in a day or more than one basketball game in a day. You get tired. Your brain will get tired. It At a certain point, it's almost like a bell curve when it comes to studying for these uh, standardized tests. You 
oftentimes need to get at least a little bit of a warm up and probably from like, you know, half hour in to two hours in is strong study. But at a certain point, you're going to have your attention wane and your focus decline. If that happens, especially as you're doing these practice problems, you're going to make mistakes that you wouldn't have made otherwise. So trying to just cram and memorize a bunch of things, it will make it so that as you learn one piece of information, you're forgetting another piece of information. If you're trying to just memorize a bunch of vocabulary, sure, you might know some of it, but that might not even be on this test. There's obviously a limited amount of content that will be on any GRE exam. There's only going to be 40 scored questions of each of the sections, the verbal or the quantitative. So you have to make sure that you're practicing the skills. So no matter what question you see in front of you, you know how to process the sentence equivalences or the text completions. You know how to process a quantitative comparison. So even if you're not 100% certain of the content, you put yourself in a position where you might be able to get a point because you were just doing all of the little pieces correct. Again, not all goals are pretty, but if it hits the back of the net, it's worth all the same. Great. Thank you for making this clear. Um, the second myth that is on my list today, and I would like to uh, discuss with you, um, plenty of prospective students think that they can avoid mental math with the calculator. Yeah, so uh, I like the calculator and the calculator and I are friends. But it's a terrible <laughs> calculator. I don't know if you've seen. You've probably seen the GRE calculator. It's a little thing. It pops out. It, it it has buttons on it that I don't think anybody under the age of sixty knows how to use. It's got those M plus, M minus, MR buttons. MC I think is on there. Unless you did tax accounting in the nineteen seventies, you have no idea how to use those buttons let alone how to properly employ the parentheses to make sure that you're doing the right operations in which order. It's just a mess. So the GRE actually didn't used to have a calculator. When I took the GRE for my graduate school application process, there was no calculator. About 12 years ago now, the GRE gave all test takers the terrible calculator. It's a little button that you click in the top right of, of the screen and out pops this little calculator. It is not a wonderful tool. It doesn't do much in the term in terms of exponents. Parentheses are going to be horrible because if you make any sort of mistake, you're going to get the wrong answer. Negatives are not going to work out for that same reason. Fractions, it's not good with fractions. So it's really there for one specific use case reasonably, which is if you're able, uh, if you're looking at a, a chart or graph problem, what they call data interpretation that usually occurs questions 14 through 16 in a quantitative section, if it's asking you to do 78,500,000 divided by 4,800, go ahead and use the calculator. Like that's what it's made for is somewhat onerous, clumsy, four function math, multiplication, division, addition, subtraction. That's what it's there for. But I don't want to have to pop that out for every math piece that I do either. Because I don't want to have to click that button, waste 10 seconds for it to appear, then like manually with my mouse type in six times eight. I'd much rather just know six times eight is 48. And you also want to cultivate good mental math steps. So even if you don't know six times eight is 48, try not to just memorize it. And I know that here in North America, I was... Uh, educated in the fine state of California, they made me memorize my times tables. That doesn't really help because if you incorrectly memorize 
six times eight as 46, it's not correct. But if instead you actually do the mental manipulation, which is still probably faster than pulling out the calculator, you go, well, six times 10 is 60. Six times two is 12. If I do 60 minus 12, I get 48. You know that six times eight is 48, and you've actually done the math faster than it takes to pop out our friend, the terrible calculator. So you can use the calculator. And if you are struggling to such a degree that you just need it for everything, use it because it's better than having a mistake. But to really excel on this uh, exam, and that's probably higher than 160 uh, for each section, so higher than 160 on the quantitative, you're probably going to need to speed up by not using the calculator all the time because it really is, it's not its fault, a terrible calculator. Great. And um, a lot of people actually are making strategy before starting doing the test and everything like this, but plenty of them believe that there is no strategy within a section. So could you please advise them about this? Myth? Uh, yeah, right. So the, the, the GRE and GMAT obviously are kind of cousin exams to a degree. And the GRE is usually accepted just about everywhere that the GMAT is uh, today. And the GMAT, obviously, you can't skip. The GRE, you can. And the GRE also has different question formats, but no difference in question weight. So what that means is some questions, there are four answer choices. And those are the quantitative comparisons in the, in the quantitative section. There's only four options, and they're always the same. A is greater, B is greater they're equal, or uh, you can't determine the relationship between the two quantities uh, all the time. You might also have a standard multiple choice problem solving question, just got five options, things like 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, and you just have to work that uh, like any normal problem. But then there are also the more uh, just time-consumingly pernicious questions like the multiple choice multiple answers. You could have up to 12 answer choices any combination of which, except for zero, you always have to have at least one selection. Any combination other than zero is possible for that uh, problem. And the question doesn't get more credit. You don't get extra points for getting a multiple choice, multiple answer question right. And in fact, if you've got nine out of the 10 selections correct, you get no credit at all. And then you've got your numeric entries. So you want to strategically engage with the questions based on your likelihood of getting them right in the time constraints. We know that quantitative section, it's a minute 45 per question. Verbal section, it's a minute 30 per question. So you just have to think, am I going to be able to do this reasonably under the time constraints? So for the quantitative section, you really want to lean into trying to do every quantitative comparison, which always starts the section for the quantitative section, as best you can. Because even if you can just plug in one circumstance, you'll be able to determine whether it's A in one instance and not B and C. So you can get it down to a 50-50 shot really quite nicely. Similarly, on the verbal side, multiple choice, multiple answer questions for the verbal are really annoying because you have to cross-check everything and you can't just say, well, this is the best of the options because all of them could be correct. Three to five options for multiple choice, multiple answer reading comprehension. So. By and large, you kind of have a, a structure of I want to do these now, I want to do these first, and I want to do these later. So the ones you want to do first in the quantitative section, always the quantitative comparisons because they you can guess them quite nicely and you've just got a 25% chance of blind guessing them right anyway. So always make sure you put something in for those first somewhere between seven to 10 questions. Then you want to do now any single answer multiple choice because you can 
do your alternative tactics. You can back solve, you can process of eliminate, you can model, you can do all sorts of things. And you've got answer choices for reference. The multiple choice, multiple answers you want to do later by default because they are just going to take longer because you have to do more steps, you've got to do more uh, uh, activities. And if you get any part of it wrong, the whole thing's wrong. And then the numeric entries, they basically function as a circumstance where if you know how to do it, you can just solve for X. Like you wouldn't need answer choices anyway. But if you don't, you don't have any answer choices. So they end up becoming the last thing that you want to do. Now on the verbal side of things, it really is just those multiple choice, multiple answers, multiple choice, multiple answers. I just go, I don't want to deal with those on reading comprehension unless I really have the time to do it at the end. So definitely take advantage in both sections of your mark button. You got a little mark button in the top right that you can say, I want to come back to this. And the review screen at the end. Do allow yourself to go through all of the questions in one pass. And once you hit the end, you'll see the review screen and be able to go back to the ones that you may have skipped. Make sure that you put in an answer choice at the very least, because who knows, maybe you hit the lottery and it's right. But there is definitely more strategy within the sections of the GRE because of the capacity to skip and mark than there is in, say, the GMAT, where you have to go in the order as prescribed. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, the fourth and fifth myth uh, that actually I would like to mention uh, right now um, uh, are regarding reading comprehension and vocabulary questions. So which one should be first, reading comprehension or vocabulary questions or none of them? <laughs> and it's it, 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 it's kind of a uh, of a trap, right? So I certainly have students that come in and go, I do all the reading comprehension first. And then I'll have students come in, I do all the vocabulary first. And I go, well, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't do that. Because the variable that is most in play with the verbal section and whether a question is easy or hard is vocabulary. And does every person who speaks English know all of the same words? The answer obviously is no, right? I know a different set of vocabulary than any other English speaker on earth. Just, it's a huge language. And no one knows every word. No one knows different, uh, you know, the, the same level of affixes and prefixes and roots and all those sorts of things. So doing all of either type up front is going to put you in a bad position because it's going to make it so that you're getting stuck on one of the types unnecessarily. Now, there is something tied into this, which is you have to be honest with yourself about whether or not you know the vocabulary. And another benefit to just kind of going in the order that the exam presents the vocabulary and the reading comprehension is it gives you just kind of a little bit of a mental break on one topic versus another. So you don't have within the verbal section a prescribed vocabulary has come first or reading comprehension has come first. It, it can be either way. But generally, you're going to have vocabulary, reading comprehension, vocabulary, reading comprehension. So that breaks it up to a degree. So you have a little bit of vocabulary, then a little bit of reading comprehension, vice versa. And it's roughly like nine, 10 vocabulary style questions, 10 or 11 reading comprehension. It's just, there's generally a little bit more reading comprehension than, uh, than the vocabulary style. So when you encounter a problem, 
you just have to say to yourself, what kind of format is this? And if it's vocabulary, I just keep going as long as I know what the vocabulary is and I'm able to understand the sentence. So if I'm able to come up with my own uh, word or phrase as a prediction for the text completion or sentence equivalents in front of me, and I'm able to evaluate the answer choices, these are going to go faster and they're probably going to be easier. But the second I don't know a word, does staring at a word, Martina, make me suddenly understand its definition? I understand. Okay. And... It can't, right? You just you stare at the word and you're like, uh, unless somebody hands me a dictionary, it's not getting any better, right? You, you're, they're obviously not going to give you one. So you have to just work the vocabulary as it comes in front of you. But with mm -hmm. the reading comprehension, you don't want to leave it to the end because if I had more time with the reading comprehension, it can improve my skill, my, my score, right? Having more time helps. But if I waste all of my time on reading comprehension and doing it all up front, then I don't have time for what may have been the easiest questions, which are vocabulary questions that I know the meanings of all the words. So don't dictate to the exam which order you want to do the question types in the verbal section. Instead, do the ones that are easier. And unfortunately, you're going to have to decide that on the fly because I don't know what words you do and don't know as an individual test taker. Thank you. Thank you so much for um, making clear uh, about those two myths. And another one that uh, I would like to discuss today is that the technical math is always the fastest. Could you so, please prove them wrong <laughs> here? <laughs> Absolutely. So the technical math can be the fastest. And we, you know, will generally want to try the technical approach first. Technical for approach, if you can do it, is the fastest. And we'll, you know, uh, rely on an analogy from sports. So theoretically, if you have any idea about basketball, if you're underneath the hoop um, and you get the basketball, you're supposed to dunk it. So now, Martina, can you dunk a basketball? Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> Probably not, unless you are six foot, you know, six foot something tall. I don't know how yeah. tall you are. But yeah. it's one of those things where it's like it either happens or it doesn't. And But if you can't dunk the basketball, you can still score it. You can still throw it in the hoop, and it'll go in, and that'll work out fine. It's not of the course. only way. So mm -hmm. if you don't see the technical approach, it's got to be like dunking a basketball. You just do it. You don't think about it because you're six foot nine and you can reach the hoop. Done. But if you don't, then don't feel like I got to keep doing the technical math. Because if I keep doing the technical math, but I don't know how to do it, it doesn't get any better. And I quickly run out of time on this exam where it's got a fast pace. You've got a minute 45 per question average on the GRE quantitative section. So if you don't see the technical way, don't feel like you have to do it that way, especially with the quantitative comparisons, because quantitative comparisons, oftentimes you can just sit there and go, OK, you know what? Let's see if X is two, whether the little expression on top ends up being bigger in A than in B. You find out yes or no, and then you can potentially try to plug in a different value to change that outcome. You don't have to do the technical approach. You don't have to think that that is the only way to solve. And that flexibility, again, these exams always, always, always reward flexibility and approach. So if you see the technical math and you're like, well, that's going to take me forever, or you're looking at it and going, I have no idea how to do it, that's fine. 
look for a way to go around and still get the right answer because you don't need to do it technically. And sometimes technically is actually going to just take longer than if you evaluated the information more logically, because that's what this test ultimately is, is it's a test of logic, not of math. And that makes sense because the GRE, not just uh, when it comes to business school admissions, has so many uh, really widely varying applications. I've had people use the GRE for MBA admissions. I've had people use the GRE for American law school admissions. I've had people use the GRE to get admission to fellowships in Amsterdam. I've had people use the GRE for PhDs in literature. There are so many uses of the GRE. And if you just think about it that way, it's got to be a test more of universal logic than of just really abstract technical arithmetic algebra or geometry, for instance. Great. Thank you so much. The um, seventh myth that uh, is on my list and I would like to mention here is that uh, most of the prospective students think that more words is better for the essays. So, so the essays themselves, the there are, again, two use cases for the business school use case for the essays, you do not need to hit a word count. And in fact, if you were to look at the example of a four, and the four mark is really, and honestly, with the G, with the GRE, you could probably even go to a three and a half, but a four, if you get a four on your essay, you're at the 56th, 57th percentile as of the most recent um, statistics that they've released, plenty good enough for every uh, MBA application uh, use case here. And if you look at the four example essay from the official guide to the GRE um, textbook, it actually doesn't even finish. It's like three relatively unimpressive paragraphs and the sentence cuts off in the conclusion mid-sentence because they show, they're showing you that you don't even have to finish and you can still get a four. But it'd be better if you did. And time management is an important part of this. And if you're just trying to do a non-literature or English-focused degree, you are fine with a three- or four-paragraph essay that addresses the task. Get through that. You don't need to do more words. But if you're trying to get a PhD from Cornell University or another Ivy League university here in the United States, I can speak to a past experience. I did have a student that needed a six. The six on the essay is actually the hardest thing to do on this exam because a six is a 99th percentile, a 5.5 is a 98th. So to get a six is really, really difficult on the uh, GRE essay portion. And in that case, you immediately, like right now, maybe even before you start listening to this podcast, needed to start doing speed writing drills. If you are not seeking a advanced degree in literature or English, you have no need for word count. Instead, just focus on producing a relatively bland, but coherent and task addressing four paragraph, maybe even three paragraph essay that shows that you understand what's happening and that you have basic proficiency with the English language. You don't need to be creative. In fact, creativity for a four can be a little bit of a danger. You've got to make sure that you stick to what the task is. If they're asking you to evaluate a, an issue, you actually have to take a position. Make sure you clearly state what your position is. Don't offer a third position that wasn't in, that wasn't in the in the prompt. But 
just trying to do more can actually make you end up with a poorly organized essay, an essay that doesn't necessarily go in the direction that you think. And instead, rather than trying to shoehorn as many words as possible into your essay, take three to five minutes at the beginning of the essay, brainstorm by identifying the conclusion for the argument essay, identifying your position for the issue essay, and then basically kind of outlining within the word processor, just here are my points. And this is what I'm going to get. I'm going to hit this point. I'm going to hit this point. I'm going to hit this point. And then fill in the essay kind of from that position. If you do that, leave a minute or two at the end to proofread, even if it's just a relatively short, like say, you know, three to four paragraph essay that's coherent, makes your points clearly, shows that you understand the circumstances. It's going to be a lot better than a five paragraph essay that is all over the place. Thank you so much. And we have mentioned vocabulary before uh, a couple of minutes, but let's mention it one more time. And let's say that um, a lot of uh, people think that vocabulary is most important for the verbal section. So is that actually true? Stephen, you here? Because I'm not able to hear you. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I, I, I oh. hit the mute button accidentally. I apologize, everybody. Uh, <laughs> happens no problem. No problem at all. It happens. Your so what I was saying about vocabulary is that vocabulary, you will have to study it, period. Full stop. No matter who you are, you're going to have to study your vocabulary. But it's not everything. Because vocabulary is important in allowing you to derive definitions of words without knowing exactly what it means. And English is a, for lack of a better term, a mongrel of a language. And it's because the English got in boats and went all over the world and they picked up words from everywhere. And not just that, but for whatever reason, different parts of Europe wanted to invade that really, really gloomy island all the time in the like middle, middle ages. So you've got Greek roots, you've got Latin roots, you've got Germanic roots, you've got all sorts of roots. You even have words like hoi polloi that has nothing to do with anything in the European languages. So what you need to recognize is how those older languages inform words in English. So vocabulary is most important in terms of roots, affixes, and suffixes. What those are, are basically the little chunks that create a word. So if we consider, say, the word benediction, you might recognize the root bene from the Latin, if you're a Spanish speaker, like bien or bueno or something of that nature, and that means good. Diction, you might recognize from, say, another word, dictionary, and that means, you know, place that we find words. So benediction means good words, if you're being kind of rough about defining it. It's actually the uh, speech given at the beginning of, say, a Catholic mass. It's like, you know, the opening introduction uh, blessing of an event. But if you just know it as good words based on those uh, roots and, and uh, affixes, you're just as fine. But having to sound out and define every word is just impossible. 
Instead, you have to make sure you cultivate a good process for working through elimination and predicting, predicting your own word or phrase for these vocabulary questions and not just assuming that because I don't know the word means that it's I can't get the question right. Oftentimes, you'll be able to eliminate everything except for the word that you don't know. And you might be able to say, well, everything else is wrong, so it's got to be the word I don't know. Don't get hung up on vocabulary as being a necessity for every problem. Vocabulary is important, but it's not the most important. The most important part of the voca of the verbal section is always going to be your process, making sure that you're trying to understand the information, trying to uh, predict your own answer for what the uh, the question should be, whether it's vocabulary or reading comprehension. But that said, you still do want to make sure that you're studying at least probably 15 to 30 minutes of vocabulary a day to build up that repository largely of the parts of speech so that you can apply them, knowing that you're never going to know every word that you see on the GRE unless you probably already are an English major. Thank you so much. And um, one more myth that uh, I would like to, not one more, but two more myths. And the first one will be that, um, that more practice practice exams actually leads to a higher score yes. plenty so, of perspectives believe this so what do you think about this. yeah <laughs> actually and that's right i've uh so you definitely need to do practice exams but you also need to do practice in between the exams and you have to recognize that just memorizing the practice exams is not the thing to do fortunately i've had students who've done this i've had a student who like went through all of the gre power prep exams that are online at ets.org gre and he was ultimately getting 170s because he had memorized every question he did not do well on his actual exam because None of the questions that he memorized were on the actual test. So this goes back to our very first myth of you can't cram, right? But you do need to do practice exams, but you got to make sure that you've got gaps in between them. So don't just do practice exam after practice exam after practice exam. You've got to make sure that you're supplementing that with drill sets on specific topics. So reading comprehension, vocabulary questions, whether it's sentence equivalences or text completions, quantitative content, quantitative concepts. So making sure you're doing quantitative comparisons, making sure that you're doing different areas of need, whether that's rate problems or exponents or plane geometry, 3D geometry, combinatorics. There's a ton of different practice uh, materials out there. And generally what I recommend, again, is it's unreasonable to expect yourself to be able to do a full, and remember, you should always do full practice exams. If you're gonna engage with a practice exam, do it fully, which means that I'm spending at least three and a half hours on this thing because I want you to do the essays too, because you have to do the essays first. If you're skipping the essays, you are inflating your score because you're not taxing yourself with that initial hour of writing the essays. So do your full practice exam, but it's just not realistic to be able to set aside three and a half hours every day. Instead, do an hour in the morning, an hour of review in the evening. Do that throughout the week, weekends, every other weekend, every third weekend, depending on when you are ready for a practice exam. Do it when you have the time. And then make sure that you review that practice exam. Consider whether you understand the problem that you did. Consider whether you understand the explanation that's provided. Make sure you're checking not just the questions that you got wrong, but the questions that you got right. Because if you guessed it correct, 
That doesn't mean that it's replicable. You've got to make sure that it's a process that you understand or are able to execute on the next question of that same type. So practice exams, definitely necessary, but just cramming a whole bunch of practice exams actually can be detrimental because it certainly is going to be rather disheartening if you see consistently the same score over and over and over again in your practice exams. And that would be a reasonable outcome because if you're not practicing in between, you're not going to improve that score. Instead, make sure that you're focusing on areas of need in between practice exams so that you can actually see an improvement in the score when you take those full practice exams at a reasonable interval. Great, thank you so much. And the tenth myth that I would like to throw away today um, is that uh, they need at least a uh, three hundred and twenty overall. So um, everyone yeah. wants to know what the GRE target score should be, and the GRE target score is. Uh, kind of a mystery when it comes to business school applications in particular. There is a GRE conversion tool. You can literally Google for it. It's uh, got a kind of funky uh, URL, but it's at ets.org slash GRE. And your admissions office uh, may be, your target admissions office, that is, may be using that. We don't know. That's possible. They may have their own uh, structure. It's completely kind of open-ended. And Business schools, most graduate schools do not publicize their GRE scores nearly as openly as they do their GMAT scores. It's just the nature of it. So if you're using the GRE for business school applications or any other uh, use case, you have to do a little bit more digging and figure out what their target is. And a 320 overall is not actually how the exam is, is scored. The GRE does not combine its score. So ETS, the people who put forth the GRE, do not combine the score. Schools may, but that's up to them. And again, depending on the program that you're looking at, that 320 overall may not be relevant if you're able to raise up your quantitative score. And they may go, okay, we don't really care as much about the verbal. We just don't. And that's fine. So you have to make sure that if you're going to use the GRE, that you try your darndest to figure out what the score is that they want. And oftentimes, that can only be discovered through direct contact. And what I mean by that is not by emailing, not by going to their website, but actually calling people at the admissions office and saying, hey, I'm applying to your program. I'm using the GRE. What is a target range for the GRE? make them say so and recognize that even more so than the GMAT where they'll have like a hard stop, the GRE generally is just a bar to clear. So if you hit the minimum, that's all you need. Even with the GMAT, I'd say, man, and the LSAT a little bit less so because the LSAT is actually more applicable uh, to your law school performance than these exams tend to be. But the GMAT, it doesn't matter after you take the exam and get in. Make sure you're clearing whatever the bar is but that 320 overall in and of itself is a false narrative because there is no such a thing as an overall score for the GRE. Make sure you're figuring out what exactly you need based on the specific desires of your target schools and know that all you need is what gets you in. It will not matter after you've gained admission. Great. 
Stefan, thank you so much for uh, giving this really interesting and valuable information about all of those myths and we just throw them away. Um, I believe that we help to uh, our listeners and that we make the situation a little bit easier uh, for them. I want to remind everyone that you can visit my Guru website. I will leave a link here in the description of this podcast. Um, of course, you can listen the previous episode with Stefan um, that we have discussed the top 10 GMAT myths. I will leave a link here as well so you can listen if you have missed it. And stay tuned for more because we will have uh, IELTS myths and TOEFL meets. So please stay tuned for more. Stefan, thank you one more time for your time today. It was my pleasure. I, I wish everyone who's taken the GRE all the best. And please visit MyGuru's uh, website, myguruedge.com, and contact me if you have any individual questions that I might be able to further answer. Great. I want to wish a good luck to all of you in your academic journey as well. On behalf of our team, uh, I want to remind you again to visit uh, unimai.com and unimiprep.com. Of course, you can find all of the links in the description of this podcast. And um, of course, um, have a nice day and stay tuned for more.